the place for talk on the internet. This is TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com. InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. For many Americans today, our country's material abundance seems to be a birthright. Never before has there been so much prosperity, yet many modern Americans assume it's always been that way. It hasn't, and the rapid growth of prosperity has changed our nation in many ways. To talk about this, let's welcome Brink Lindsay to InfoTrack. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Now, you're Vice President of Research for the Cato Institute, a Washington think tank, and you've written a book titled The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture. Now, your book, Brink, follows the upward path of our country from then to now. I'm wondering if you can start out here and give us a quick overview of some of these major changes that eventually transformed our nation. Well, I'm trying to describe changes in American society, in culture, in values, in ideological alignments, in politics, basically in the period since World War II. And I'm using the advent and deepening of mass prosperity as a kind of prism through which I explain what's been going on in this country during this period. So the way uh, I see it, in the years right after World War II, America was really truly something new under the sun. It was the first time in human history that a large society had existed where the vast majority of people weren't poor, the vast majority of people weren't directly exposed to the vagaries of nature for their basic material needs. And so this kind of widespread prosperity where material deprivation was now the exception rather than the rule, and of course the deepening of that prosperity in the decades since then, was truly a revolutionary development, a real change in the human condition. It's something, as you mentioned in the intro, we're all completely used to now. We take it for granted like a goldfish takes for granted the water in the bowl. It's just part of our environment. We don't think of ourselves as incredibly rich. We're all struggling to make ends meet, but that's really only because our expectations are so extravagant now compared to those of most people in the rest of the world. Three billion people on this planet today try to get by on under $2 a day compared to what was the norm for the vast majority of humans throughout history. So if you can kind of step back from taking for granted what we've got now and sort of shake yourself from that complacency, you see that something really big and transformational happened. And so it's really not surprising once you accept that, that following in the wake of this material transformation were all kinds of revolutionary and tumultuous cultural and social developments as well. Yeah, it absolutely has. And I guess this really got underway in the 50s when, you know, people after World War II had ended and we had this sudden thirst for material goods and things just sort of seemed to take off from there. Today, of course, they seem to just keep continuing. And, you know, it's amazing how you think we've maxed out and, you know, another decade comes along and it's even more. Yeah, the sort of centerpiece is explaining where all the social upheavals of the 60s and 70s came from and then how we've been coping with them. And absolutely, the root of those upheavals is in the kind of placid suburban prosperity of the 50s. It didn't seem possible that we would go from Ozzie and Harriet to hippies and riots and 
bra burning. But in fact, the baby boomers, the generation that started in 1946, the year after World War II, baby boomers were the first generation in all of human history to be raised to take basic material needs more or less for granted. And these are kids that had much broader choices than anybody had enjoyed before. And all of the culture wars and red state versus blue state ideological divisions that we've been dealing with ever since really originated out of that experience. We're talking on InfoTrack with Brink Lindsay, author of The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture. Brink, if you look forward, and of course the baby boomers are entering their golden years in some cases, soon to be uh, retired, and let's move the clock ahead some more decades, and the baby boomers have now gone on to the golden uh, halos and everything. We're left with a new generation coming up. How do you see the future going? Is it going to go in another direction, or can you even predict that? I think society has moved past the baby boomers. They're aging, entering retirement years now, starting to. But our politics is still kind of stuck in the intellectual and ideological categories that the baby boomers created. So in the 60s, you had all of these new movements that were made possible by mass affluence and by the new values that mass affluence created, the civil rights movement, feminism, environmentalism. But the irony was the people at the forefront of all those movements were campus revolutionaries who tended to despise the capitalism and middle-class values that had created all the prosperity, which made all these new values and new possibilities emerge. Then the people, on the other hand, defending capitalism and middle-class values were the people who defended those things because they defended all the traditions they'd been raised with. They were traditionalist social conservative types. And so those people were defending capitalism and middle-class values, and at the very same time were the people most likely to be freaked out by or outright hostile to all the cultural and social dynamism that capitalism and middle-class values were creating. Ever since, we've been stuck in this kind of rut of a battle of half-truths. You've got the left celebrating the fruits of capitalism while condemning capitalism itself, and the right championing capitalism while proclaiming that its fruits are toxic. What American society has done, I think, especially in the 80s and 90s and now, is move past this ideological division. We've kind of figured out how to live with the best of both worlds, that we didn't abandon capitalism and the work ethic and go off and live on communes like 60s radicals thought we might. We stuck with capitalism. In fact, we've got a more entrepreneurial, competitive, globalized economy than ever before. We stuck with, for more or less, the two-parent family and those kinds of bourgeois norms. And yet, we've had just a dramatic change in attitudes about race, in attitudes about sex, in attitudes about the role of women in society, attitudes generally about authority and deference to authority. And so we've got a kind of a synthesis that I describe as one that can be called libertarian. That is, that it's much more open to economic change than it was before, back in the big government, big labor days. And it's much more open to cultural change than it was before, that the counterculture influence has really permeated all of society, to some degree at least. And yet our politics is still kind of stuck in this red versus blue mode, and so there we have it. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, there is a tremendous conflict out there. Yet I think, as you pointed out, most Americans are pretty much living in the middle, but the debate, and certainly what's in the media and so on, seems to be dominated by voices more on the extremes, and that's sort of what we're exposed to on a daily basis. But again, I think most Americans are not are not at an extreme personally. I think they're living somewhere in the middle. So that's right, and part of why I wrote this book was to counter this idea that we're in these uniquely polarized red versus blue times, and I think our politics are polarized and very partisan these days, no doubt about that. But society itself, I think most people 
people are in this kind of non-ideological middle where they think that American society is basically good. And, and of course they think that way because it's their billions of decisions that made it what it is today. People on the far left tend to think America is wicked because it's materialistic and competitive. People on the far right tend to think America is wicked because it's secular and hedonistic. Uh, but most people think we've got it pretty good. And yet our politics is organized around discontent with our kind of new social order rather than around a consensus that this new social order is worth preserving and building upon. Brink, we've seen in this country, for example, the tragedy of 9-11 had a tremendous effect of seeming to pull everybody together. Is that really what's necessary, you know, a common tragedy or an invader or some horrible, stressful event to get us all back together again, or are we just going to continue to have these polarized opposites? I don't think it's necessary. God help us if it is necessary. I think what the surge of patriotism and feelings of unity that were occasioned by 9-11 revealed was that the cultural pessimists were wrong. There were a lot of people on the social right during the 90s just saying that American society was going to hell in a handbasket and maybe it's just morally too far gone. 9-11 happened and by God we discovered we had heroes in our midst. The people in Flight 93 who you know, saved the capital of the White House from ruin, the firefighters and policemen who were going up those burning twin towers to save people. We realized that in our unruly, pluralistic, semi-chaotic diversity, we have a great deal of social strength. Society was kind of getting its act back together again as we were learning to live with, with greater freedoms. The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture. Brink Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us on InfoTrack. Well, thanks for having me on. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.